This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Now, uh, we're talking about emotional intelligence today, and uh, it's a really hot topic. It's a really interesting topic, uh, but it's a really hot topic. Um, there are groups of people, uh, in which I kind of guess I would broadly include myself, uh, who think that attending to issues of children, young people's well-being, uh, their um, emotional state, broadly speaking, can be um, a really powerful tool in developing the kind of education system and outcomes that we want. Um, there are others who think it's all a load of old nonsense, it's inappropriate, uh, it's just the latest kind of bit of progressive madness. Um, and uh, it's an issue, I think, that will be in one way or another, perhaps not as kind of clearly and rationally as we might like, but it'll be an issue which will emerge even in the run-up to the election campaign. So it's a hot topic and a fascinating topic, and we're delighted to be discussing it today. We're co-hosting today's event uh, with Cambridge Assessment, and we're looking at some of the issues raised by some recent research they've undertaken, which has found a link between emotional intelligence and exam success. Many UK schools, both at primary and secondary level, are involved in government-backed initiatives such as DCSF's Social and Emotional Aspects of Learning, SEAL programme, uh, Siegel aims to develop some of these skills in students with the overall aim of improving not only behaviour but also attainment. So we're delighted to have a, a panel of experts. Now, what we're going to try and do in now 55 minutes is have, I think, five experts speaking and then six people responding. So you, you're not going to get a look in, to be honest. Um, and I'm going to manage it incredibly carefully, so actually there will be time for questions um, at the end. Uh, and if I seem at certain times to be a rude chair, I have warned everybody that I'm going to be incredibly strict with the timekeeping. So don't email me afterwards and say, how could you possibly be so rude and cut that person off? I'm having to do it in order that we can get through all the elements of our conversation. Now, we're going to start... Uh, with Dr. Joanne Emery, who's a research officer at Cambridge Assessment. Joanne's going to provide an overview of this recent study by Cambridge Assessment, which has shown that some aspects of emotional intelligence, EI, in particular self-motivation and low impulsivity, (coughs) significantly predict attainment in GCSE sciences over and above the contribution made by academic ability. Um, We're then going to hear from a whole lot of other people, but rather than telling you about them all of them now, and then you forget, I will introduce some... Uh, one at a time uh, when they speak. So, first of all, I'll hand over to you, Joanne. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to tell you very, very briefly about a research study I've been involved in with two of my colleagues at Cambridge Assessment, uh, Carmen Vidal and John Bell. And we've been investigating the relationship between trait emotional intelligence and attainment in a variety of GCSE subjects. Um, trait emotional intelligence covers a range of personality dispositions and behavioural dispositions related to emotions and social relationships. Um, It includes within-person aspects such as um, self-motivation and well-being and your ability to persist despite difficulties Um, and also your ability to control your own impulses and moods and adapt to new situations. Um, And it also includes interpersonal or social aspects such as um, your ability to get along with other people, um, influence other people's feelings, um, assert yourself and communicate with others. So what we did was to measure emotional intelligence in a sample of almost 2,000 British GCSE students uh, in 31 schools and we measured emotional intelligence using Petridis and Furnham's Trait Emotional Intelligence Questionnaire. 
Um, It's a self-report instrument that measures 15 different aspects of emotional intelligence, as well as giving you an overall score. And all the scores range from a minimum of one to a maximum of seven. So uh, we got the students to fill in these questionnaires about two months prior to taking their GCSE exams in 2007. And we then looked at the relationship between their grades in a whole range of different GCSE subjects and their emotional intelligence scores. And we controlled for their prior ability at age 14. So, in other words, we looked at the amount of progress they'd made between their key stage three tests and their GCSEs. Uh, In the first phase of the research, we looked at GCSE attainment in a a range of science subjects, and we found that emotional intelligence affected some science subjects more than others. Um, Attainment in the Vocational Science Award, which is the Applied Science Double Award, was significantly related to almost all of the 15 different emotional intelligence aspects, and overall emotional intelligence scores were a very strong predictor of success in this subject. Um, For example, if you took students with the same key stage 3 score of 16, which was about average in this group, um, those who had an overall trait emotional intelligence score of 3 had around a 40% chance of getting a grade C or above in this subject, whereas those with an emotional intelligence score of 6 had over a 90% chance of getting a grade C or above. Um, For the separate sciences, biology, chemistry and physics... We found that overall emotional intelligence scores were a significant predictor of biology and chemistry performance after controlling for prior attainment, but not physics. Um, However, two of the specific aspects, which were self-motivation and low impulsiveness, were significant predictors of performance in all three of the separate sciences, as well as being the strongest predictor of performance in the vocational science subject. Uh, In the second phase of the research, we investigated a wider range of GCSE results in the same students, and we looked at English, English literature, maths, French, art and drama. And um, we found that um, overall emotional intelligence scores were a good predictor of success in English, English literature and drama, but were not a significant predictor of success in maths, art or French. Um, but different aspects affected different subjects to different degrees. But again, we found that low impulsiveness emerged as a strong and significant predictor of progress from key stage three in all of these different subjects, and self-motivation significantly predicted every subject with the sole exception of French. So in summary, emotional intelligence appeared to affect different GCSE subjects to different degrees, Um, It actually appeared to have the strongest effect in subjects where students' key stage three attainment was lower, and that was the case in the vocational science subject and in drama. Um, However, the conclusions are that self-motivation and low impulsivity clearly emerged as the most significant, strong and consistent predictors of every subject we looked at. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great, that's fantastic, Janet, absolutely to time. Okay, now um, we have a number of uh, respondents. Uh, First, uh, David Chater, who's been Labour MP for Bury North since 1997. Before his election, he was to Parliament. He was Head of Continuing Education at the Manchester College of Arts 
and uh, Technology. He, he currently serves on two parliamentary select committees, the Children's Schools and Families Committee and the Environmental Audit Committee, and it tells you something about the state of the Labour Party. That when I said to him, how are you, he said to me, I'm fine, I'm leaving the country this afternoon. Um, yeah, Matthew, you've taken 30 seconds of my very restricted time. <laughs> um, can I say thank you very much indeed? I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Matthew was completely incorrect when he introduced the panel, saying there would be five experts here. There's actually four experts and one MP. Of course, if an expert is someone who knows everything about something but nothing about everything else, an MP is someone who knows a little about everything but very little about anything in great detail. So when I was first asked to uh, come on the panel today um, by the Cambridge Assessment, I... I <laughs> was a little bit surprised because I didn't know what emotional intelligence was. And my first thought was, well, you know, does it exist? If it exists, have I got it? If I've got it, how do I know I've got it? And if I've got it, does anybody else know that I've got it? If I have it, should I be advising Gordon Brown before he goes on YouTube next time? <laughs> and, but what I want to say is I was fascinated by Joe's presentation and I actually saw the, the video clip on the website about uh, 12.30 this morning, the last thing I did before going to bed, and I thought it was a really, very really plausible um, account of um, what we need to do more of within our education system. I want to say three or four things, really. First of all, is this, however, absolutely a statement of the self-evident? Is it the fact that I'm interested in this merely because the conclusions of the research tends to reinforce my own prejudices? Point number one. Is this something that many of us have suspected, known about, believed in for many, many years, and we've now just got a set of stats that tend to confirm it? Point number two, what does this say about what goes on in primary schools? Because the research is all on Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. And what interests me is when we talk about high ability and low ability kids in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, what are we saying about ability? Is, ability, is the ability they demonstrate at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 fixed? Or is this the result of their experiences in primary school? And point number three... Uh, what does it say about curriculum, assessment, and our approach to knowledge? And I would suggest that the research here throws up interesting questions. For example, about the formality of education in the early stages of Key Stage 1. Many countries whose systems perform overall far better than ours in the UK and they deliver greater equality of achievement, uh, don't, of course, thrust their children into formal learning at such an early age as we do. And I think there's an argument that says forcing, not forcing, strongly encouraging children to read, for example, before they've had the opportunity to gain confidence and be properly socialised may be counterproductive. And from an early stage in their careers, we're setting them back. What does it say about the nature of the curriculum, the implications of the national curriculum, in the early years of primary school as well as in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4? Are we, or have we been for the last 21 years, locked into a national curriculum that is far too focused on the acquisition of knowledge and the regurgitation of knowledge for competitive purposes rather than the encouragement of children's ability to learn? And I would say that in the fast-moving world in which we're in, then what matters is not the acquisition of a particular body of information at one point in time, but the development of enthusiasm for and the skills to acquire new information continuously. 
And uh, maybe my final point, and this is bang up to the date because the Secretary of State um, has made a statement uh, this lunchtime in the House of Commons about the reform of key stage two assessment. My final point is, what does this teach us about assessment? Is the assessment system we now have um, the uh, best way of developing the talents of all our children? Uh, I understand that Ed Bulls, within the last hour, will have said that at key stage two, science sats will now be abolished following his... uh, doing away with uh, QCH3 SATs last year. This is a step forward, in my view, to a more progressive assessment system. But we are still locked into the problems of um, an assessment system that too often labels children. One of the saddest things that I come across uh, in my constituency work is meeting parents who tell me proudly their child is a level 5 child, whereas the kid down the street is only a level 2 child. Now, somehow, it should not surprise us that children, when they get into their secondary school, who have been labelled as level two children at the age of 11, children, when they get into the secondary school career, don't have the self-confidence, the self-motivation, or I'm not sure how it fits in with low impulsiveness, but I'm sure it must do somehow. Um, And that is going to affect their capacity to learn and to thrive and to achieve in secondary schools. And I just make one very, very final point, which is an extra one, really. What does it say about our school system as a whole because uh, the the heart of the assessment debate is this um, problem of us being uncertain as to what we're really assessing. Are we assessing individuals' uh, children's performance? Are we assessing schools in order to rank them in a hierarchy? And again, I think there are important questions raised here by the hierarchical approach to school structures. And the fact is today that many thousands and thousands and thousands of our children know that they are in schools that are at the bottom of a hierarchy. And again, it should not surprise us that when they get to the age of 13, 14, 15, they're gradually disengaged from education, they underperform in vocational science subjects and others, and some of them want to leave school as quickly as possible and forget learning for the rest of their lives. Thank you. Thank you, David. Great, thank you. Uh, so, well, now we have uh, John Biner, who's Emeritus Professor of Social Sciences in Education at the London Institute of Education. He also directs a think tank, Long View, where his research interests include basic skills and capabilities, economic and political socialisation, social exclusion risks, and the wider benefits of learning. John. Thank you, Matthew, and uh, pleased to be here. Uh, One of the jobs I was doing before I retired was running a centre on the wider benefits of learning. Now, that was premised on a rather different aspect of this, which, of course, David has just picked on, which is um, that it takes take for granted that some of the outcomes of education should be about emotional control, should be about strong social relationships. All these things are enormously important and tend to be neglected in education. Now, what we're talking about today, of course, is this as an input to actual cognitive academic achievement. Is it actually improving GCSE results? And here I think it's, um, you know, it's hardly surprising that motivation and impulsivity or lack of it are going to contribute over and above purely cognitive skills to that achievement in an examination. I mean, it goes without definition, uh, without saying that, uh, you know, uh, 90% of education is probably about motivation and the other 10% is perspiration, as a lot of people have said, so work and motivation. So to identify that with something as deep and as sort of powerful as emotional intelligence, rather alongside cognitive intelligence, that kind of metaphor is a little difficult when so much of it hinges on two particular aspects. Now, the other way, there are two ways of looking at this. One is that these are personality traits deep in the individual, probably some genetic basis to them. 
you know, the various things that we hear about in the research. And very interesting research it is too. The other is that these are abilities, these are skills that you can acquire through life, and therefore education has a major value in relation to them. And research we did some time ago for the Cabinet Office from the Wider Benefits of Learning Centre really looked at these sort of issues. What, what can we measure in age 10-year-old children that will predict their outcomes at age 30 in the major domains of life, like psychological well-being, health, uh, achievement in the labour market, things of that kind, social engagement and, and political activity and so forth. And what we found was rather similar to this. Of the, of the, we looked at this in terms of what are the resources the child brings with them into this situation of education and, and life that follows it. And that can be seen in terms of kind of capitals they can draw on. Then they build their own resources around capabilities that they can develop, capabilities being the means of achieving ends in life. And we found that a more effective framework. We looked at three kinds of capital. The cognitive capital that you need to achieve in examinations, the social capital, not mentioned in most of the writing about this subject, but the strengths of social relationships, communities, the family, and so forth. And finally, psychological or identity capital, which is about these things like motivation, control of your feelings, all the rest of it, in order to be a balanced individual who's going to actually then uh, succeed in life. And I think what we found very effectively was that most of these things are not strongly predicted by family background, so there's a lot of scope for manoeuvre development, but they are then very much implicated in these longer-term outcomes in life. In this sense, we link very much to the research. It's just a question of how you conceptualise it. Do we need emotional intelligence to describe these specific abilities which don't consistently uh, predict these outcomes, but one or two do, will predict one thing and not another, as we found. In other words, each individual has a pactal of capabilities they can bring together to apply in particular situations. This is a school situation, educational achievement, and in others. They, the use of them is very context-specific in life, and that's the way we can more effectively see not only their value, but how to actually improve them, development for individuals, to gain more capability and therefore get more out of their lives. So we'd like to suggest, or I would, another line way of looking at this. One aspect of social, emotional intelligence does talk about skills, and I would rather emphasise that rather than personality traits, which seem on the face of it not to be awfully changeable. Thank you very much. Okay. Great. Uh, now, finally, from up here... Uh, we have Jackie Beer, OBE, who is author, former head teacher, and consultant. Jackie introduced several curriculum innovations in her school, including the RSA Opening Minds competency-based curriculum. And she left to take up consultancy and training work in 2006. She's written several publications linked to transforming learning, including her latest book, The Learner's Toolkit, which provides support for teachers delivering lessons in social and emotional intelligence. Jackie. So, um, you know, what what did you learn in your first part of your secondary school, in, in first and second year or key stage three, is one of the questions I often ask teachers when I'm doing training. Um, that what they always say is that they can't quite remember or they remember some sort of very emotional experience, falling out with a friend, etc. My experience has been, as a teacher and as a head teacher and as a trainer, that what all teachers believe children need to be is motivated, self-motivated, independent, resilient, flexible, have great communication skills, have that wonderful charm and rapport quality. You know, some children have and some adults have, and it absolutely takes them places in life. 
Um, unfortunately, our curriculum and our outcome-driven, assessment-based system has actually not delivered the sorts of learners we need for the 21st century with the habits of emotional intelligence. So my argument is, in having taught it to teachers and to children for, for 10 years, that we can actually, through a process of self-awareness and reflective learning, we can develop that sort of thinking that makes them think about their thinking, that makes them question and challenge the way they're thinking, particularly if they're finding it hard to motivate themselves. Um, I would think that teaching them a little bit about the brain and how it works and about the emotional brain and how well a driver it is and how the emotional brain can hijack learning so that when you make a mistake and get it wrong and come, don't, don't do well in an exam or a test um, that you want to give up and, and, and decide not to per persevere that you understand why that's happening and you have strategies for being able to move out of that situation. Um, I would like to say that the, the assessment for learning um, drive that we're doing in school where peer assessment, self-assessment is very much part of the formative assessment approach, teaches young people how to monitor their own learning progress and take responsibility for it, which is very, very powerful. And I would also say that having a, a pedagogy that is collaborative, that encourages active learning, that makes children work together and work through all those sort of communication issues that will develop their emotional intelligence is absolutely crucial for our education system. Um, we we d uh, deliver competency-based learning, joining subjects together, working in groups, and helping children to, in the classroom, develop these sorts of skills that we can see from this research will make a difference to their outcomes. And yes, it is personality traits, and it's genetics, and it's parenting. But actually, some children need the extra help in schools because they're underachieving, because they don't even know about this stuff. And my, my, in teaching things that I've taught young people, they've often said to me, why don't you know about this before? I want to understand how to control my thinking, how to understand how to control my moods and motivate myself and have empathy and, and actually be a great communicator, because I know that that's actually going to matter to me. So my, I suppose, drive is to help schools, as many schools are already doing, um, to have the leadership, the emotionally intelligent leadership, the emotional intelligent teachers that can deliver and role model that sort of sense of self-awareness and openness and confidence and self-esteem that will help our young people grow up to be happy and successful citizens. And I think the outcomes of this will be better attendance, less exclusions, um, far more um, engagement, enjoyment of learning. Uh, that, that's, that's the way I see it. And yesterday I was listening to uh, Radio 5 and uh, they were talking about the best job in the world. I don't know if anyone heard it. And there were lots of people coming on. And usually if you listen to those phonies, it's really miserable and ratty and moany and people angry. And everyone was talking about the best job in the world. It was everything from helping babies to learn to swim to hotel management to um, astrophysics. But you know what they all had in common? They all had in common that actually what makes you really happy is actually learning about stuff and growing and growing other people as well, communicating and seeing other people's success. Those are the sorts of children we want to grow for our future society, I think. Thank you. Great. Well, awesome performance by the panel. They've absolutely stuck to their time. Uh, and now we have... Uh, six people who are going to make short contributions. They're all sitting in the front row. I've looked at their job descriptions. They're all perfectly capable of standing in front of a room like this and performing brilliantly. So I'm going to send them each of them up to the lectern for their three minutes. 
Uh, they're not going to hesitate, they're not going to deviate, and there's going to be no repetition. Feel free to make a, bu- a loud buzzing noise if you think that they are. Um, and we're going to zip right through them, and then we're going to have a chance for a, a, a Q&A, and then I'm going to bring just the panel back for kind of one minute, literally, uh, uh, at the end. OK, so one by one. Let's start with Catherine Eccleston, who's Professor in Education at Oxford Brookes University and is running a major ESRC project looking at the kind of implications of the whole emphasis on emotional well-being in education, aren't you, Catherine? I am indeed, and the RSA is supporting it, which is great. Um, I'm just going to make a couple... I'm going to make an observation at the beginning and then just try and confine myself to to three points, because there are so many intertwining um, issues in this whole debate. The first observation is that I'm really pleased that this debate is happening, because actually if you look at the whole field of development around the policy in this area and the practice, and different ideas about emotional intelligence, emotional literacy, emotional well-being, not the same things, but all often elided together, there's very little critical questioning of, A, whether this is a good thing, B, why is this happening? And C, is this the purpose of educational uh, institutions to develop some of these areas? So I think that's the first thing, that there needs to be much more critical public debate. So the the first of my three points, as I said, there's a massive amount of activity around very different ideas very different uh, concerns that are driving those ideas, whether it's from the state of mental health about children and young people, emotional well-being, self-esteem, emotional literacy, etc. Loads of government funding, numerous ad hoc initiatives and interventions. And I think in deciding as a sort of a public or a practitioner audience and a research audience, is it right for schools to develop emotional intelligence? People need to know much more about how the sort of research that Cambridge Assessment is doing relates to the plethora of other ideas and very different interventions that are also going on. And this project and the claims that are being made for it, and I'm not going to go into the claims in detail, are only one strand in a very complex field. And Dennis Hayes and I have just co-authored a very provocative book called The Dangerous Rise of Therapeutic Education. And we are being deluged with um, emails from parents and teachers who want to know more about this whole emotional development area. I'm going to leave aside a really key point about whether emotional intelligence is a set of traits. Uh, Even psychologists disagree whether it even exists, let alone whether it's traits or capabilities or whatever. So the second point is that in deciding whether emotional intelligence is a good way to go, uh, other initiatives, uh, supporters of other initiatives like assessment for learning, not assessment for learning in the emotional um, well-being way that I think Jackie described, but as a way of developing cognitive uh, knowledge, um, learning to learn, learning power, happiness lessons... All of the advocates of those initiatives claim to have great impact on grade achievement, to produce really happy children, etc. So we need to think, what is the way to go if if we want a way to go? What is the evidence base? And as a teacher educator, what I want to know is where do teacher educators put their efforts? The subject training of teachers is already squeezed to the absolute limit. How far do you start developing a whole set of training um, in this area? My final point is that I do accept that many children and young people love having teachers and schools focusing on them, their emotions and their feelings. Not the same thing, by the way. And 
I think this says something worrying, actually, about how adults believe that they can inspire and motivate children. The first thing is you're bound to get a sort of Hawthorne effect going on. In a narrow, test-driven curriculum, serious attention to me and how I feel and how I'm learning is likely to be very compelling. A related methodological impact is catalytic validity. When, when you introduce an intervention that's very different from the rest of the experience that kids are having, you're bound to have a impact. So I think that's something important to look at. So the final point is that I think that giving in, if you like, to the idea that we are all emotional creatures who can't learn unless our emotions are attended to, that can't learn unless we're emotionally resilient, is actually quite a depressing idea about young people. Um, and, and it's also an abdication for me of the idea that we can inspire people through subject knowledge, learning something really meaningful and deep and not learning about myself and my capabilities. And my final point is that I don't think the education system is to develop um, capabilities in that way over and above subject knowledge. I think we have to develop subject knowledge as the key aim, and I think this starts to distract from it. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. I found that very upsetting, actually, but... Um, <laughs> which, means it's not, which means it's not intellectually valid. Um, OK, uh, and now we'll have Felicity Martin, uh, who's head teacher at uh, Ego School, Alton. Felicity. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. I'm a head teacher of a secondary school, a comprehensive school in Hampshire. And just recently, when a quite eminent visitor left my school, he told the, ta the taxi driver told him that school turns out great kids, and we do. We have children who are confident, enthusiastic, academic achievement is high and rising, but our children are quite significantly strong and enthusiastic about themselves, each other, and the way the school works. Now, we don't teach emotional literacy in a separate lesson or definitively in a different way from the learning that goes on across the school. Our school believes in um, children not with necessarily high or low abilities, but children who are multi-talented and multifaceted, and children who are individuals. So before Every Child Matters became a government, um, very important government initiative, um, we believed every single individual child mattered. And that comes through our teaching, our subjects, the curriculum, our standard operation procedures, our leadership, our professional development. Every child in my school believes I know every child in the school. And some of that is true. Um, but we do know our children. We know our children through the systems. We know our children because we enjoy teaching. And we know our children because we talk to them and we listen to them. We have thematic um, assemblies and tutor times each week, which tackle issues as they did last week. Um, we had a theme last week of um, how do we make the impossible possible. And we showed that extract, that awful programme, Britain's Got Talent, forgive me, in this um, uh, uh, company. But uh, that the Susan Boyle... We all watch it. Yeah, I was <laughs> well, I... I, I and my husband thinks I'm terrible. But anyway, uh, I showed it to the kids, the Susan Boyle extract, and I said, listen to the lady, but look at the people's faces, the cynicism, the sneering, the, their attitude to that lady until she opened her mouth and showed what she had. And the kids were fantastic. I can stand in front of my children in assembly and I can talk about warmth and love and enthusiasm for their learning and why it's important and what we're there for. And my children are fantastic ambassadors for their school. If you want to see what Ofsted thinks about that, 
We were inspected last week, um, and the report will be on the Ofsted website in about 10 days. Um, my kids are great kids, and the learning is effective, and they are getting good results. And I'm an enthusiast for every single one of them, and they are for their school. And that, for me, is what makes headship and teaching what lights my candle, really. Thank you. Felicity, that was fantastic. I wish I'd gone to your school. <laughs> I went to Boyd's Grammar School in South London, and they did an emotional intelligence test there. And uh, if you passed it, you weren't allowed to teach in the school. Um, OK. Uh, next we have uh, Tim Oates, who's Group Research and Development Director at Cambridge Assessment. Tim. Thank you, Matthew, and good afternoon. Um, OK, one of the interesting questions, of course, for this research is why on earth should an awarding body be interested in all this stuff? Are we just gearing up to busily market tests in order to force them onto schools to uh, assess people um, left, right and centre on aspects of uh, the, their performance that they're currently not assessed on? No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's a moral imperative that derives from the work that we do. Um, we don't just sit back because we spot stuff in the data which we handle on a day-to-day -day basis. We see that social background makes a major impact in terms of attainment. And this research, in terms of scrutiny of data, suggests very strongly that emotional intelligence, in the way in which we've measured it, also makes a difference in terms of attainment. We can't just sit back and say, OK, it's there in the data, but we'll just get on the, with the business of uh, issuing national assessments, public examinations, and so on. So it's driven by a moral purpose. The reason that we are promoting it strongly in terms of public debate is it does link to other bodies of compelling research, the work that John Bunner's done. But beyond that, the kind of work that Cathy Silver's been doing with Brenda Taggart on effective uh, early years provision, uh, which suggests that we should be striving to attain a much better balance between effective and cognitive elements within the curriculum. But there are significant challenges in that and some, and some stunning false oppositions being set up in public debate which is actually dysfunctional in terms of understanding how we should take the insights of this research and actually place it into elegant and adequate policy formation. Um, just a couple of points, really, Chair, on that. Um, if we look at other research on what levels in the system actually make an impact on individual attainment, what we find is that local authorities don't have a massive impact. Which local authority you're in as a child doesn't make a huge impact. What school you're in has a significantly greater impact. What teacher you have makes a bigger impact still. We know that social background also is highly effective in terms of the attainment that you secure as an individual as you progress through schooling. We have to take all of these things into account and feed them into the discourse within policy as to the right balance we should have in different phases of education in terms of the emphasis on the effective and the cognitive. What's critical, I suppose, to take from, from, from Joanne's very clear presentation of our research is that what we found is a general effect. Okay, so the effect in individuals, as John has emphasised, will be different. And as yet, we don't believe that the large-scale interventions which have been constructed and wheeled out at great expense and at considerable effort have actually engaged with the challenge of identifying how these things combine in particular individuals and what interventions and support should be wheeled out to individuals within the individual classroom context to enable, us to, to enable children to develop these skills 
insufficient balance with their, their cognitive uh, abilities, skills and understanding to ensure that they have the right sort of trajectory in life. Um, so that sort of lays out the agenda, I think, for policymakers in terms of appropriating the insights from this kind of research and, and certainly contains a major warning in terms of ensuring that the false oppositions which are clear in certain debates are avoided and not perpetuated. Thank you, Tim. That's a very good point. I find that the world is divided up into those people who make false dichotomies and those people who don't. Um, uh, our next speaker is James Park, who's director of Antidote, which is a good name for a company, if you want to move out of what you're doing, I'm sure. That, anyway, um, it, was just, it is actually nothing to do with swine for an organisation working with schools and other organisations to shape more stimulating and dynamic learning environments. James. Yeah, well, I've been, I spent 15 years trying to develop the company that uh, does just that. And um, every time I meet policy wonks, they have been asking me for just this. Um, does emotional intelligence affect the evidence that it does? Um, and I've reached this point today when, in a sense, the philosopher's stone is held before me. And I'm saying, actually, I'm not sure I want it. And the reason, I think, has been clarified by this discussion, which is realising there is an enormous difference between the argument that... Um, that, that there are emotional elements to examination success and the argument that we should be shaping schools that allow young people to develop the full range of emotional, social and cognitive skills that, that our society needs, that our economy needs and that we as individuals need in order to have a fulfilling life. Um, and I think the dysfunction in policymaking that Tim describes, really, comes from this, this element, which is that the people who lead policy, excepting Matthew and his distinguished policymaking career, of course, have um, the, the capacity, the, the, that particular bunch of cognitive, social and emotional skills that enables them to pass exams. So that however much reference they make to other capabilities and other skills they can't see that valuing those elements beyond everything else is crippling to the development of, uh, and of an enormous numbers of young people and crippling to the capacity of schools. Uh, and crippling is an exaggeration because I think a lot of schools do manage very well to overcome the negative consequences of policy, but, but limit the capacity of schools to give all young people the best possible opportunities to learn and to grow. So really, this is not the answer um, that we... Need. I mean, it's obviously it's useful, it's rich, it's fascinating, but it's, it's not going to make that shift that, that policy needs to make in order to give young people the opportunities they need. Thank you. Thank you for assuming I was good at exams. The one thing I remember from my school... Yeah, no, the other... The, uh, one thing I remember from my school report when I was at Emmanuel was uh, at the end of the year five, fifth year, fifth form, as it was called then, it's called year 11 now, it's not what it, Year nine, ten. What year is it? Fifth year. <laughs> Eleven. Yeah, that's right. It just said O levels are for the mediocre, and accordingly Taylor passed. Um, <laughs> so our penultimate uh, speaker is Dr. Dino Petrides. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it's right. There you are. Uh, who is reader? It's got a very long job title. Reader in psychology and assistant director of the doctorate, of the doctorate in educational and child psychology at UCL. Dino. Right. Well, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Cambridge Assessment and the um, RSA for inviting me here and giving me the opportunity to say a few things about this uh, study. As a, a genuine academic, the first thing that I would like to say is that the uh, issues and the, the questions that we are looking at are far more complicated <laughs> than, uh, uh, than the uh, appear at first uh, glance. 
Nevertheless, I think uh, following the completion of this uh, study that uh, Dr. Emery summarized, this, you need to know, is the largest study that has been conducted in the area uh, ever. So up until now, there's, there's no study that even comes close to uh, what uh, Cambridge assessment have actually, uh, have actually pulled off. And with the completion of this study, and even though I hadn't had enough time to look at the data very closely, I am um, absolutely convinced now that uh, trait EI is relevant to academic performance and behavior at school. Uh, I underline the um, words trait EI, first of all, because it needs to be distinguished from a number of uh, less scientific approaches that are, exist uh, out there. And I also underline the word relevant because the situation is not as simple as many uh, seem to think that we go out of the schools and raise everybody's uh, EQ and uh, then academic performance is going to go up and everybody's going to be well adapted. That's, you know, it's not as simple as that. But there's, there are clear and replicable relationships between trait EI, academic performance, and behavior school. And there's no question about this. We've conducted several studies up to now uh, with many of my colleagues, and uh, Dr. Stella Mavrovelli is there, but with several other colleagues uh, around the world. And we believe that the, the relationships are, are um, replicable and clear. Uh, I would have to disappoint the, the professor, I'm afraid, on the point of the um, uh, immutability of personality traits. Uh, trait EI, uh, in particular, has uh, only about half of its variants uh, genetically determined. In other words, the majority of the variance in trait EI scores of the individual differences in trait EI are environmentally uh, determined. They're not genetically determined. So there's enormous scope for, for interventions. And I think that now is the time to uh, take all this research evidence that's coming out, that's accumulating very uh, uh, rapidly out there in the literature, and apply them to the um, uh, intervention programs that we roll out in the schools. Because right now, most of the intervention programs that we see out there are severed from psychological theory. They're severed from the uh, research evidence. So it's time to integrate theory and research and uh, intervention. Thank you. Daniel, that was awesome. It kind of, it, it, you, you spoke with such passion, I kind of got the idea that maybe we should reverse the hypothesis. Maybe it's not being emotionally intelligent makes you good at science. Maybe being good at science makes you emotionally intelligent. Um, yeah. Now, our final speaker is uh, um, uh, Sonia Soda. Is that right? Soda, as in the water. Yeah, brilliant. Um, who's senior researcher with Demos's new fantastic capabilities program. Sonia. Hi, everyone. Well, I just wanted to focus on kind of three points um, today and how we can think about moving this agenda forward because it's been quite a busy agenda policy-wise. We've had the development, of the, uh, the development of the government's social and emotional learning um, aspects of learning programme, which has been rolled out to all schools. So where do we kind of take this agenda next? And are we there? Is it box ticked? Well, I don't think it is um, box ticked. Um, the first thing that I wanted to say was that I think, you know, SEAL, it's a very good resource for schools, but by itself, um, it's not going to change the world. And I think if we're really committed to this agenda, we need to think about how schools and teachers can be supported above and beyond SEAL um, in delivering kind of emotionally literate uh, classrooms um, and schools. And there's a few things we should think about here. Uh, first of all, I do, I do think there needs to be a greater focus in initial teacher training and, con and continuing professional development in creating the kinds of classroom environments that we know um, support and foster emotional intelligence. Because what we know from the research is that it's the nature of relationships 
relationships between teachers and children um, that are really key. Secondly, I think we need more space for it in the curriculum. We don't need SEAL just um, as an add-on. And I think, um, as uh, John was talking about earlier, there are particularly things to be thinking about in terms of how we can make it relate to more age-appropriate pedagogies, so to play-based learning and how that relates to emotional development for five- to seven-year-olds, for you know, particularly appropriate uh, pedagogies for early adolescence in key stage three. But finally, I think we also need to think a bit, uh, a bit about outside the box about who's delivering uh, this agenda. And obviously, teachers and teaching assistants, which are the first jobs that sort of come to mind when we think of schools, they're, they're absolutely key roles. But we need to think a bit more um, outside the box too. And I think our vision for a 21st century school is one in which we have a much greater diversity of professionals and adults working with children and young people alongside teachers and teaching assistants. And there are some really exciting things going on that I can think of. There's a charity called place to be which offers um, support, uh, emotional support and counselling services within schools, Uh, has counsellors working with teachers. In some schools you see educational psychologists doing a lot of training with teachers in schools around these issues. You have organisations such as Antidote um, going in and working in conjunction with schools in these areas. So I think we need to think a bit more broadly about this agenda and delivering this agenda than we have done in the past. The second issue I wanted to come on was um, the sort of the old thorny issue of measurement and accountability. First of all, do we want to uh, be able to measure emotional literacy? I think that's an important question. How do we define it? What does progress look like? Um, Can we think of a a way that teachers should be um, assessing development in emotional literacy? And I think we've got a a long way to go around um, thinking some of these issues um, and thinking is a lot less developed than in the sort of the, the traditional kind of cognitive skills like literacy um, and numeracy. I think the second point in this area is in our system of high-stakes assessment, um, are social and emotional competencies and emotional intelligence ever going to be given the same status um, as other outcomes so long as uh, we can't measure them? And this is a very controversial issue, uh, the idea that perhaps we should be holding schools accountable for these things and we should be measuring them. But I think we either need to find a standardised way of measuring progress um, in these competencies, which is not as easy as it sounds, um, because obviously they're the kinds of things that you want schools and young people to have flexibility in thinking about Um, but either we do that or we make um, assessment less high stakes Um, and a couple of years ago I'd have said politically well this is this is a no-goer really but very interesting developments in the last year or so with the abolition of key stage three sats abolition of key stage two science obviously it's not necessarily for the reasons that some of us would all want but these are these are the directions in which uh, policy is pushing so very interesting there very briefly the third point I just wanted to make was around the kind of political challenges um, in this area because I think there is a significant challenge in getting sign up across the political spectrum on this Um, it's been a big issue for the Labour government but I think we're we're going to be if there's a Conservative government, uh, when and if there's a Conservative government, there's going to be less of um, a keenness around this agenda. So I think the, the responsibility lies on us as practitioners and policymakers and lobbyists in this area to think about the language that we use to talk about these things. And, you know, we think about self-motivation you know, maybe we need to talk about gumption, low impulsiveness. Maybe we need to think about personal responsibility and ability to control behaviour. And I think, again, politically, that's where research like this is going to be very important in making the case to the right that these skills um, matter. If I take only one idea away from you today, it will be the idea that the way to sell emotional intelligence to the Conservatives is to call it gumption. I think that's absolutely, <laughs> that's absolutely awesome.
And I've realised now why I've got a problem with this notion of seal. It's because whenever I think of seals, I think of Canadian fishermen hitting poor defenceless animals on the head. Um, and it's a terrible metaphor to think about really in relation to emotional intelligence. Anyway, uh, now, we've got ten minutes to go. And what we're going to do is take five comments from you, uh, which will be short, sharp comments. And don't ask questions because I won't have time to answer them. And don't make long speeches because I'll cut you off. Uh, but add something brilliant to the debate in the one minute that I'm going to give you absolute maximum each. And tell us who you are when you speak, starting with you, sir. John Hislop, and I'm from the medical paradigm. Uh, interestingly, I've just come from a nice meeting looking at um, autism, the other end of the order here. Could you speak more into the microphone, sorry? How is that now? That's fine. Sorry, Perfect. yeah, right. I'm from the medical paradigm, and I'd just like to represent the elephant in the room here, and that is that John didn't make reference to the key achievement, which I think he should have been referring to for social animals, men and women, and that was marriage and parenting. And where are the parents in this? Why is the state and the education system suddenly taking responsibility for social development, which is what we're talking about? That's the, uh, the googly I'm bowling at you. Because with the current long-established government of three terms we are seeing a very rigid PC institution in education, which isn't the social animal it was when I went through it. And I think that is restricting education. The fact that teachers cannot hug children, they are less interested in giving extracurricular time to the children, says something about this society. It's parenting this society as much as education, and you cannot divorce them. Thank you for that. Very powerful point. Um, who's next? Oh, my goodness. Ah, there. Hi, I'm Geetu Bawani. I head an organization called EI World, which I founded 10 years ago, and we've been working with these concepts of emotional intelligence in schools and organizations. And the point I wanted to make is that we noticed in our own school programs that when we were trying to do work with children it wasn't actually as effective as working absolutely with the leadership of schools. And I think it was Felicity's point that really sort of struck a chord with me that, you know, clearly, you know, she's doing fantastic work in her school. And what we found is that by bringing the leadership of schools up a notch, that can actually affect school outcomes without even calling it emotional intelligence. Great. Thank you. Two more left. So, um, th- thank you. Ah. Again, I, I suppose I, I'm a dinosaur because I went to school when, um, although I was extremely bright, I always came out in absolutely upper levels in every exam. My headmistress simply said to me that was no good at all. I had to be a good all-rounder, and I think that this is something that um, the government, in its the way I understand the national curriculum now is ignoring, and I welcome any of these initiatives. I'm, however, disturbed at the sort of definition that you're using for emotional intelligence, because it certainly isn't my understanding of what it is to be emotionally intelligent. I think what you are talking about is traits in the ability to use our minds at higher levels, and that is to be encouraged at, at all levels. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay, and then, uh, yep. Hello, yes, uh, Richard Churches. I'm Principal Consultant at CFPT Education Trust. 
I should say I'm actually um, quite a big fan of the concept of emotional literacy, but I just wanted to play devil's advocate just for a moment because there hasn't been too much of that. So, and just to ask you, we know that a number of very eminent psychologists have often suggested that emotional intelligence is actually measuring social conformity. So I want to ask you the question, how did you control for the variable of the children who are conforming most being given the best teachers, knowing we know about teachers making an impact? Tough question. And then finally, finally, finally. A panel, you've got one point to choose from, one point to make, so think about what you can do. My name is Peter Chia. I'm doing some research at the moment. Really, I'm a philosopher. I'm rewriting science, the sciences. Right, my point is addressed to Jackie Beer. You talk about training in the brain and also the emotional aspect of the brain. But one point has been left out by all speakers, and it is the mind. Where does the mind fit in? And of course, there's something higher than the mind. I'm also rewriting about uh, materialism. Fantastic. Okay, Jackie, you're going to have one minute to resolve the mind-body problem, uh, which I'm sure you'll do pretty well. Okay, so thank you for those comments. Uh, I do hope that one of you at least is going to pick up this point that it's the parents who are to blame, um, which I think would be the kind of general public reaction to a lot of this stuff. Um, okay, so let's start with you, Dave. Me? Okay, I've got three um, half points, really. On parents, yeah, I think it goes without saying that whatever is done within the education system, underlying that is the impact of the wider economy and the impact on families and parenting schools. And we've got to accept that in spite of the best efforts of educators, unless we have an economy that is rooted in the values of stability, high levels of unemployment, and fair rewards for skill and talent, then we will always have a dysfunctional element in our society that um, means that a large slice of our children at bottom end will always be struggling in school. Um, my other point is, it is true, I'm actually leaving the country this afternoon, but I'm coming back. Uh, it's not out of despair. It's because I want to go to New York City with the Children's Schools and Families Select Committee of the House of Commons to look at the school report card. And it seems to me that we've not touched on this particular today, but we've talked about assessment. Um, and it does seem to me, after the changes to assessment the government announced today and a few months ago over Key Stage 3, the next stage in government policy to recognise some of the ideas circulating today is to change the way we assess schools. Out with the old league tables on raw scores, in with some form of school report card that will actually assess on a far wider range of um, achievements uh, across the board, which will be to the advantage of uh, children who don't necessarily score high on cognitive skills. Thirdly, uh, the, my final point is I was uh, brought up on Bloom's taxonomy. Uh, I mean, it sounds incredible, but I was. And it always occurred to me when I was doing my PGC and grappling with Mr. Bloom that, yes, there was obviously a need to recognise the three uh, the, these three domains, but the domain that was neglected most seriously in our education system was the psychomotor domain. We've talked today about the importance of linking better relationships between the cognitive and the effective domain, but the reality is most people in any industrialised economy, in any economy in the world, earn their living and gain their self-respect through psychomotor skills, and we really need to be looking at ways in which the psychomotor skills are also better integrated and better recognised and rewarded than the purely cognitive and effective skills. And you know, the, to, put, to put it you know, very, very briefly, we are very, very good in our educational system at producing people who can tell you every aspect of the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, but still have difficulty tying their own shoelaces or doing their own washing up. Thank you. Uh, I've just got one question about your New York visit. Yep. Can I come? No. Um, no. Right, uh, John. 
Well, um, yes, to address the question. Amalia Sen defines uh, capability as a freedom to achieve well-being. And well-being, of course, goes way beyond just cognitive performance as revealed in exams. So that must be a goal of education. It goes without definition, it seems to be. The means of getting there must be to do with the kinds of attributes that we've heard about in this research and also come into so much of other work that's been done in this field, you know, the personal, the social, as well as the cognitive. Now, the elephant in the womb, the family. Of course the family is a very important part of the foundations of this process, tremendously important in relation particularly to the cognitive side, but what we found was that at age 10, the capabilities of children in this broader sense, emotional, social, and so forth, were not so heavily related to family. There was a lot to play for in terms of educational development, the role of schools, the role of peer groups, all these social interactional situations through which we become what we are, our identity. That's all I'm really arguing. Call it emotional intelligence if you like, but I'd rather call it, you know, the personal attributes that allow individuals to achieve well-being and that's capability. I think I read somewhere that you're twice as likely to smoke as a child if your parents smoke but you're ten times as likely to smoke if your peer group smokes. Interesting. Okay. very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, that, that I'd rather think about developing the habits of emotional intelligence for parents absolutely and for teachers and leaders to help support the vast range of all the students in our schools that need that support. And um, I think that as far as measurement's concerned, uh, Howard Gardner said it's much easier to measure stuff than ways of thinking. So that's going to be an ongoing challenge. How do we measure? How do we show progress? And we'll never all get there, will we? Because we're all on that lifelong journey towards being these sort of uh, emotionally intelligent beings. And part of that is the mind-body connection, understanding how does my mind affect my body and how does my body affect my mind. Absolutely crucial that we let children know how that happens. Fantastic. And then, uh, um, uh, finally, Joanne, do you want to respond to that methodological challenge that was put to you? Not that uh, most of us understood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't actually control for social conformity, but I'm aware of a couple of other studies using the same measure where they have used additional measures of social conformity. You still get the same predictive relationship even when you partial it out. Brilliant. OK, well, we've heard about seals. We've heard about elephants in the room. We've even heard about dinosaurs. Uh, so you're going to have weird dreams tonight. Um, can I ask you to thank our fantastic panel and contributors? This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.